Well, good morning, guys. It's great to be with you. If you don't know me, my name is Mark Nelson. I'm the campus pastor over at our Greece campus here at Northridge. And I do want to say a quick hello to all of our campuses from wherever you're joining us from, as well as those uh, here online with us. It's great to have you with us as we continue our way through this series, Verified, through the New Testament book of 1 John. And I want to actually invite everybody to go there uh, with us now to page 987 if you're using one of our Bibles or however you access um, the Bible. We hope you'll go there to 1 John chapter 3 today. That's where we're going to land and let me mention as you're going there that, uh, man, I'm an 80s kid. I love the 80s. And uh, when, uh, when it was the early 80s, there was this absolute phenomenon that hit store shelves, kind of lit up store shelves anywhere. Man, this product was so popular that it kind of broke the internet before there even was an internet. I mean, that's, that's how ridiculously popular this product was. And I'm talking about, I'm talking about Cabbage Patch Kids right now. That's what I'm talking about, Cabbage Patch Kids. You probably heard of these. Maybe you had one at one point. But, um, man, the deal with these dolls was um, they, uh, they, they weren't bought. You didn't buy one of these dolls. No, instead you paid an adoption fee for the privilege of having one in your home. And uh, they came with an identity. They had names. So uh, this one is named Faye Celine. And uh, they had, you know, they came complete with um, adoption papers and a birth certificate, and people went nuts over this stuff. Like, they loved this concept. And in 1983, Cabbage Patch Kids became the most successful new doll introduction in toy-making history. People were nuts about these things. And my own sister, who was six at the time, she wanted one in the worst way. The problem is they were going for like 100 bucks a pop. And my, my family was kind of broke. We didn't have you know, that much money. And my parents couldn't afford one. And so my mom apparently found this lady that like worked the doll underworld or something. <laughs> like the shady toy black market, right? And she, um, she found this lady that made fake ones for a fraction of the cost. And I don't know if they were lettuce patch kids or what they were, you know what I'm saying? But like these, these dolls, um, she made fake cabbage patch kids and she sold them for a fraction of the cost. My parents bought one for my sister and she opened it on Christmas morning, 1983. And I remember she was thankfully just young enough where she kind of bought the whole thing and wasn't emotionally scarred for life, you know? But I remember thinking like fake Cabbage Patch Kids, that's kind of funny and kind of ironic even because like the whole point of a doll is that it's just, it's a fake baby. Like that's what a doll is. The essence of a doll is that it's just a pretend child. It's not real. And so we wouldn't expect that there would be real life affections from a doll because it's just plastic and fabric and stuffing. You're not expecting any, that there's any real desires from a doll. There's no crying. There's no you know, hunger for food, no appetite, no dirty diapers as a result, which is the upside. But there's no nothing, right? There's nothing with a fake uh, child because they're not real. Um, and in fact, if a doll does come to life, that's when things get really creepy, right? You know what I mean? Like, that's Chucky kind of stuff. That's, that's Annabelle. That's the stuff of horror movies. We don't want that. And if, and if little Faye starts clawing her way out of the box, like I'm the first one to hit the door. I'm telling you what. But like that's the way it is with dolls, right? We don't expect them to have life. But it's a whole different story when it comes to an actual baby, right? When it comes to an actual living, breathing baby, 
It's completely different. In fact, <laughs> thank you. Hi there. This is little baby Chrissy, and Chrissy is a real baby. <laughs> She's a real live baby. And she, as a baby, has real life affections. She's happy. She's, Chrissy's happy a lot. She smiles. If she's happy, you'll know it because you'll see all the signs of life. You'll see the smiling, the cooing, the giggling. That's what real babies do. And then when they're not happy, you're going to know about that, right? She's going to be upset, mad. She'll scream. She'll, if she has a dirty diaper, you'll know about that. You're going to change it. You know? If she's hungry, you'll know. She'll let you know because all the signs of life are there. And, and for there to be life in a real baby, it's not creepy. We call it cute and adorable, right? But that's the difference between a baby in a box and an actual real baby. There's a vital difference between life and lifelessness. Just a vital difference between that which is actually alive and that which is merely lifelike. I've got to put some babies away here. See if I can get some help. All right. Thank you, Chrissy. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Got her? Yeah. Okay. All right, we'll put Faye back in her box. In her box. Okay. Um, hey, but we're in the book of First John. And, and John has, as we've seen throughout this series, uh, he wants to be all about verifying whether this claim that we make to be children of God is actually real. Is it true? Are we real children who have real spiritual life within us? Because just like we, we saw with a real baby and an artificial doll, the difference is going to be vital. Whether there's real life inside us or whether we, spiritually speaking, are fake, plastic imposters, the difference is vital. And the answer to that question is going to really uh, have some serious implications for what would and should be true of us. What would be true of you, uh, spiritually speaking? What would be evident in your life if you had real spiritual life in Christ? What kind of behaviors would you display? What affections would you have? What desires? How would you talk? What were the things, what would be the things that would show up in your life? And so this is what John wants to reveal to us here in chapter three of his letter. So let's look at verse one together. He writes, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. So if you've placed your faith in Jesus as the savior of your sin and leader of your life, then you are, in fact, a real child, not a fake uh, plastic imitation. And the reason, he says, the world does not know us is that it did not know him, speaking of Jesus. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we, will, what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, speaking of his coming return, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So the ultimate end, John is saying, for every Christian is Christ-likeness. We're not there yet, but we're getting there, and we're going to get there. John says we shall be like him. That should be very encouraging this morning to us. Verse 3, all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. So if our ultimate end is Christ-likeness, is purity, why wouldn't we get started on that right now? And essentially what John is driving at in this first section is simply this, that resembling Jesus is the goal of every child of God. Resembling Jesus 
Christ-likeness, that's the goal of every child of God. You remember last week, Aaron challenged us to resist sin like Jesus did. Well, (laughs) these themes should start sounding very redundant because remember, we're looking at one letter with this primary focus of walking like Jesus did. And John, you know, said here in the section we just read, the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. That's because we're meant to look a lot like him. We're meant to reflect Jesus in a growing way throughout our lives. And over this uh, rest of this chapter three, John is gonna describe for us how that's gonna actually take place. How is it that the world and those observing us might actually see the character consistent with Jesus' life, his attitudes, his reactions, his behaviors. And so I think we're going to notice what I'll call three, three signs of life children of God display. Three signs of life that if you're a real child of God, you won't be able to help but put on display. And since John is going to use family language throughout this chapter, I want to express them also through the lens of a family. And to be clear, these signs of life, they don't make you a child of God. No, only faith in Jesus does that. But they do reveal whether or not you truly are a child of God. They verify whether God is really your father. And so let's look at verse six. John writes, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. He reemphasizes the same idea in verse nine. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. And so the first sign of life that John gives us is kind of the eye test. You can tell just by looking, you could say. In family language, we would say it this way. You bear a family resemblance. You bear a family resemblance. I I was a, a youth pastor Um, for many years before becoming a campus pastor. And I remember, man, I could have a a whole crowd of teenagers gathered together in a room along with their parents. And you could tell just by looking because of the amazing resemblance of teenagers and their parents, you know, kind of who belonged with who. Uh, Teenagers were often embarrassed by it. Parents sometimes wanted to disown their teenagers, but the fact of the matter remained like there was no denying that like this kid was that dad's daughter and that kid was that mom's son and so on because there was an unmistakable family resemblance. And that is exactly what John is saying is also true of the family of God, that Christians essentially look a lot like their dad, our heavenly father, Um, that we as Members of the family of God share some spiritual traits, some family of God traits. And in in verse 10, he mentions two of them specifically. And these two traits, he says, distinguish for us who is a child of God and who is a child of the devil. And these two traits are consistent obedience to God and love for other believers. Consistent obedience to God, love for other believers. And he really seems to focus in on obedience to God in this section. And then in the next one, he'll look at love for other Christians. And so let's look at obedience first. Obedience is how we display our love for God. It's kind of God's love language, you could say. And John says that the child of God consistently does what is right. Or they they can't continue to sin. They can't go on sinning. So the challenge here this morning is that if you're a person who has simply settled in to some kind of sinful lifestyle with absolutely no conviction of heart and no thought of 
stopping that sinful practice and turning away from it, then John doesn't have any encouragement for you today that you should consider yourself a child of God. I've encountered some Christians that seem to be brazen or bold in their attitude about practicing behaviors that God clearly tells us to avoid. As if to say, hey, don't lump me in with those other Christians who are all uptight about obeying God. I'm reminded of a line of of t-shirts and novelty items with the slogan on them, I love Jesus, but I cuss a little. And I suppose that's meant to be kind of humorous and provocative, but if it's meant to be funny, I'm not sure Jesus is laughing because to flaunt sin or to trivialize sin is not the attitude of someone who's been born of God. It's one thing to recognize that you struggle in a certain area, that you struggle, for example, to honor God with your words, but it's quite another to broadcast on a t-shirt that you're quite proud of yourself for it. And as we've seen in the first two chapters of John's letter, he knows full well that a Christian is going to sin. But he also knows that someone who sins consistently or worse yet is proud of their sin is not actually a child of God at all, but an imposter. I love how John Stott once said it. He said, sin and the child of God are incompatible. They may occasionally meet but they cannot live together in harmony. That's what John's saying. And you see, instead of of that um, conflict, a heart that desires instead to honor God combined with consistent obedience is good evidence that God is your father. In fact, speaking of evidence, there's a word that we need to notice in verse nine where John wrote, no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. This word seed is an interesting one. It's the word that we get our English words seminary from. And we also get another English word. This will be a little bit awkward, but it's the word semen. Told you it was going to be awkward, right? But it's, 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 this interesting, it's this interesting word. We need to recognize what John is doing here. Is there a word John could have used with stronger genetic implications than this word seed or semen? Like, think about the world of forensic science for a moment. Genetic evidence, DNA evidence, it's enough to to flip a cold case that's been, you know, hidden in a basement, stored in a file for decades. And yet that genetic evidence is powerful enough to reopen that case. It's some powerful evidence. And this family of God DNA is that powerful. It simply won't allow us to remain in sin. John's kind of saying that consistent obedience is DNA evidence that God is your father. Consistent obedience, it's that genetic DNA evidence that God is your father because we're gonna be like that real baby with that alive, continuous desire to resemble Jesus. Let's continue reading at verse 11. John writes, for this is the message you heard from the beginning, we should love one another. He's talking specifically about loving other believers and to clarify that he uses the example of the first two siblings on earth, Cain and Abel. He says in verse 12, do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. And then in verse 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Well, what does that look like, John? Verse 17, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? 
Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. So the second sign of life, I'd state it this way. Ain't nobody going to mess with your siblings. <laughs> Ain't nobody going to mess with your siblings. Now, I apologize for the poor English there, but I couldn't help it because I have a brother who's two years older than I am. And let me tell you, man, my brother, one of his favorite pastimes was to mess with me, right? Like he did it all the time. But if somebody from outside of our family tried to mess with me, you know what I knew? My brother had my back. Like he cared for me. There was a deep care that ran sibling deep. It wasn't always evident on the surface, but it was truly there. And this is a family of God trait as well with one another. John points here in this section to our relationship with two different groups of people. He talks about the world and other believers. And so let's think first about our relationship with the world. When it comes to the world, John says there's expected animosity. Expected animosity. Don't be surprised, he said, if the world hates you. That's a strong word. In fact, quick shout out to the podcast that we're making available uh, throughout this series where we're trying to add some supplemental content to, this, to these sermons. And if that's of interest to you, you could check the box on today's Connections card. But perhaps you heard week two podcast where the idea of world was defined, biblically speaking. That the idea was that, that we should love the world's people, but we should not love the world's value system. And when John mentions that the world is going to hate us, this does not imply that we seek animosity with people that don't know Jesus or that we create unnecessary reasons for the world to hate us. I think some Christians mistakenly might think that Jesus sat down his disciples one day and they said, and Jesus said to his disciples, now, fellas, here's what you got to do. You just got to be weird, just be weird. Like, like, see all those people in our culture wearing sandals? They're kind of popular, right? Like, don't do that anymore. From now on for us, boots only. Like, it's going to be boots. And like, you like that Jewish sounding music? You, you like that? Well, no more. From now on, it's polka music. It's polka music moving forward for us, thus be, us as, as Christ followers because this is how all men will know that you're my disciples if you're strange, right? No, Jesus didn't say that. He said, by this will all people know that you're my disciples if you love one another. If you love one another, it'll be by your affections that you're known as Christ's follower. You'll be different in affections, not in social skills. He's not saying do all you can to make sure people hate you. No, John is letting us know this, that as we live as Christians, we should anticipate the world hating us when we hold out the hope of the gospel because it clashes with what the world values. To present Jesus as the only way to God in a culture that seems to present every viewpoint as equally valid will feel intolerant, even hateful to those that hear it. And so that'll be reason enough for the world to hate us. No need for Christians to pile on. We don't need to unnecessarily create those reasons, but the world will, con will be in conflict with our value system. And then he points to a group called believers or other Christians, and he says with this group, we can expect something different. We should expect affection. We should have expected affection, that sibling affection that we just thought about a little bit ago. And why here does John narrow the focus to other believers? Why doesn't he just say, you should love everybody? 
That would seem like the broadest, most inclusive thing to do, wouldn't it? Well, I would say he doesn't narrow the focus to other believers because we aren't supposed to love all people, regardless of who their spiritual father is. We clearly are. But he narrows it here because of what it demonstrates. John recorded also Jesus' prayer in his gospel, chapter 17, where he, Jesus said that, that our unity or the unity of his followers would be a powerful witness of the transforming power of the gospel. And, and so John's saying, you know what, when it comes to other believers who share the same spirit with you, you should expect mutual affection. This is a two-way street. It always should be when it comes to other believers. We can't always count on that with everyone. But it is a powerful witness among believers. And just as powerful a witness it is to display this love, it's that powerfully destructive when believers quarrel or when Christians talk down about the church. That's not meant to be. I don't know about you, but I get a little tired of followers of Jesus who seem to think it's somehow trendy or in vogue to disparage the church, to slam the church. An attitude that says, I love Jesus, but I don't really like his church. Really? Like, the church is the body of Christ, and so you're doing no favors to Jesus when you talk that way. You're paying Jesus no compliments. Furthermore, you're kind of hating on yourself because you are the church. The church is simply a bunch of believers. Now, I fully understand that the church at large and each individual church has a long way to go in being what it ought to be. But I would suggest that that's not a reason to slam them. That's when they need your love even more. It's when family members are hurting that we come beside them with either, even greater levels of care. We don't diss them in those moments. Well, what would it look like to love our siblings? John is clear about this. He describes it in two ways. In verse 17, he says it's about helping to meet practical needs. Just seeing material needs that exist in the lives of believers and then doing what you can to meet them. Um, I'm so thankful that one of the purposes of our community groups here at Northridge is to provide care, to care for one another. This is the true expression of faith. When we bring a meal over in a time of distress, when we help a group member with a move, or maybe with a, a home project that they are having a hard time tackling alone, when we console them beside a hospital bed or you know, in a funeral home context, all of those are true expressions of care that evidence our sibling love as believers. In verse 18, he says this means going beyond words, that words are merely empty if they're not backed by action. And to point out our ultimate standard, he says it's Jesus. Like our ultimate standard in all of this, if you want to have a standard to compare the way you're living now with what you should do, it's Jesus laying down his life for our sake. And we then also should lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Is there a greater standard? No, I don't think so. In verse 19, John continues, this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence if our hearts, or you could say consciences there, fairly, if our hearts, if our consciences condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. So what happens when you and I sin? What happens when we sin? Well, our conscience screams at us. When, when we sin, our, our conscience is affected. It shouts out, guilty. You're guilty. God can't love you. That's what our conscience screams at. And we feel it, don't we? We feel condemned before God. And John is essentially saying, don't be fooled by your conscience. 
Because what God has declared about you is greater than what your guilty conscience attempts to convince you of. What he's declared about you, about being completely forgiven in Christ and having no condemnation because of your relationship with Jesus, that's greater than what your guilty conscience attempts to scream at you. So John explains the result of not allowing your conscience or your heart to condemn you. He says in verse 21, Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he has commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. The third and final sign of life that displays we're God's child is this, that you're certain of your place in the family. You're certain of it. You know, when we know that our Father loves us, it completely revolutionizes our life. It means everything when we're certain of our Father's love. When I was a freshman in college, my dad wrote me a letter. Um, It was a handwritten, two-page letter, the kind of letter that you keep. And he, you know, growing up, I, I sometimes felt like a disappointment to my dad because I didn't always share in his interests. And I think my dad sensed that I sometimes felt that way. And so he wrote me this, this letter to apologize, essentially, if he had ever made me feel that way, and then to confirm his absolute love and unconditional acceptance of me as his son. And don't you know that that letter changed my life? It meant the world to me because this was my dad confirming his love for me, and I was able then to move forward in life with confidence and stability and pursue all that God had for my life. Do you realize today that your Father God has written you that letter, that one of total acceptance and complete affirmation? Even if your own earthly father's acceptance of you isn't all that it should be, you can still know today that you have a Father who completely accepts you through his son, Jesus Christ. And many of us, I think, today need to lower the volume of condemnation and raise the volume of the gospel because the truth is that God's acceptance of you is greater than your condemnation of yourself. His acceptance of you today is so much greater than your condemnation of yourself. And unfortunately, most of us really struggle to grasp this We tend to believe that God accepts us or rejects us based on our own behavior or ability to perform. But that's not what loving parents do. That's not what loving parents have ever done. Good parents don't withhold their acceptance uh, of their children until their children prove they're worthy of it. As a dad, I would never reject one of my daughters because of an offense by one of them against me. They'll always be my daughter's. And that's the certainty we can have about our place in God's family, that once we're God's child, we're always God's child. It can't be undone because nothing that you did had any power to cause you to be God's child. Becoming God's child had nothing to do with your behavior, and nothing you could ever do has the power to undo that relationship. It's entirely based today on Christ's finished work on the cross, and it is finished. And how can we have this confidence? How do we know that we're part of God's family and that he won't reject us? Well, in verse 24, John says, we know it by the spirit he gave us. Did you know that the spirit today, the spirit of God has been given to you as a gift? 
He's fully yours if you've put your faith in Christ. He wasn't lent to you for a little while, and you have to give him back. And God isn't a stingy giver either. He gives you his spirit just like he pays for your sins. He does it in full. It's a complete gift. It's so vital today that we understand that the spirit is a permanent resident, not a visiting guest. He's a permanent resident. John says he lives in us as a permanent resident. You know, when it comes to the spirit, this is a marriage, not a date. It's a marriage, not a date. You know the difference, right? How much more stability and security is there in a marriage than in a dating relationship. Do you remember the awkwardness of the dating phase? Some of you are feeling that maybe right now. Man, I hope she likes me as much as I like her. Am I going too fast? Maybe I'm going too slow. Is this even gonna last? And if you're not sure today as a Christian that God is with you, within you at all times and to the fullest extent, then like that dating relationship, you're bound to have a very unstable Christian experience. But knowing that God is always with you provides the greatest levels of confidence and stability in your life. You know, sometimes I think we believe that those disciples that got to be with Jesus physically, you know, walk beside him, see him with their eyes, that they had some kind of a, a great advantage. But the reality is that even as Jesus lived among them, he wasn't always with them. There were times he was alone, times he was simply unavailable to his disciples. But today, what if God did us one better than that? What if the spirit given is the way we are always with God? What an amazing gift that God gave us himself. And this spirit residency, it's God's guarantee that you and I will always have a place in his family. So three signs of life that are on display in a child of God. You bear a family resemblance. Ain't nobody gonna mess with your siblings and you are certain of your place in the family. So what should we do with this truth? Well, thankfully, we don't have to guess what we should do because John actually comes right out and tells us in verse 23. He says, this is his command, or here's what you've got to do. Believe in his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he has commanded us. Those are the two things that we need to do. Believe in his son, Jesus Christ. Have you believed? I would, I would maybe say it this way. Check your birth certificate. What does it say? You've reflected on these displays of a child of God. What does it reflect about what's really true of your life? And if you find today that you're not God's child, then the great news is that you can be adopted into his family right now. You can place your faith in what Christ has done for you and you can be adopted. And not a, not a fake plastic imitation, not a lifeless adoption, but no, a real life adoption with real life giving results. You can go from without having the life of God within you to experiencing the abundant eternal life that God offers you. And I hope if you make that decision today and trust Christ as your savior, you'll let us know about it. You can check the box on today's connection card that says, today I became God's child. And those can be your adoption papers. But maybe these vital signs today have confirmed that you are truly God's child. Well, I'm so glad for that. John would encourage you in the very same way this morning. He would say to you, believe in his son, Jesus Christ. The moment you first believed, that's when your faith began. But that was only the beginning. <laughs> you, you and I, we need to keep believing on Jesus. We need to keep trusting that what God has said is true of us because we're his children actually is. And then another step forward 
He says, love one another as he commanded us. And I would say it this way, act like a family member. Act like a family member. That's gonna look like sacrificial love for other Christians. This happens when we put the needs of other believers ahead of our own, when we lay down our preferences for the good of the whole, when we speak honorably about other Christians and about the church, when we serve within the body, doing our part to make sure our love is more than just words. Oh, but I don't really have time for that. Oh, but that would be kind of inconvenient. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And I don't know about for you, but for me, that removes every excuse. Today, are you a real life-filled child of God? Are the signs of life evident in the kinds of things you hunger for, that you're passionate about, that you get excited about, that you get upset about? Are those vital signs of life evident in you? Because these responses, they reveal who our true Father really is. And so this morning, we wanna provide you with just a few moments a few moments to briefly reflect on this truth. And we're gonna display a few questions on the screen and we would invite you to um, reflect on that, evaluate your own life, what is true spiritually speaking for you. So take a moment and do that right now.